Honey, someone's at the door. Maybe we've heard our our husband or our wife say that to us in the past. You're going about your business, going about your daily routine, and then comes that announcement, an unexpected guest. And you may follow up with a question, well, who is it? Is it a neighbor? Is it a family member? And any number of answers might generate a response in you as to what you're to make of this news. But suppose the news was something like, well, it's the police at the door. Well, immediately the response becomes a bit different, even if you know yourself that there's no particular reason you can think of that the police should be there. It's a solemn event, and immediately it becomes, well, what is it that the police want? What is it they're going to say to us? What is it that may be the matter? But what would it mean in the words of our text as You see them um, there in verse 9. The judge standeth before the door. We know judges in our own society, those appointed by the civil government to enforce the laws of the land, to establish justice in a civil sense in, in our land. And judges like that, they're not accustomed to making house visits. They're not accustomed to setting up court in private homes. But such a thing would, of course, be a most solemn thing indeed. Imagine that. Imagine that one who had complete power to both withhold freedom, to execute punishment, or to bring reward for good conduct would make an appointment if he would be standing at the door. Well, of course, what's going on here is something that is incomparably greater than even an earthly judge making a house visit. What it's talking about is the very soon return of the Lord Jesus Christ. This exhortation that he, the, uh, the Lord's servant James gives here in verse 9, Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned, for behold, the judge standeth before the door. He is talking to Christians. He is talking to brethren. And yet a warning goes out that When Jesus Christ returns, he ought to find us as those who are seeking his will. For the one who needs this exhortation, it's it's about how you treat others and how you think of others and how you speak of others. Those things for the Christian line up with how we would like to be found speaking, acting, and thinking when Christ returns. A warning like that is received by the Lord's people with great seriousness. It it influences us. It, It makes us want to live in reverent fear of the Lord Jesus' return. But as you read this surrounding context, as you come to see 
some of the other reasons he's bringing this forth. It's, it's certainly also for comfort that he speaks of this imminent return of Christ. Verse 8, be ye also patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. For the Christian, the word that Jesus Christ is returning as judge of the living and the dead, as we confess every week in our evening worship service, this is a word that not only brings awe and reverent fear of the Lord, it also brings comfort, joy, and endurance throughout all the the trials and difficulties of life. And it is this that I would like to especially bring our attention to, that comfort which can be found in this doctrine. And for that, I'd like to also read what we find in the back of our Psalters uh, on page 47 uh, on Lord's Day 19, beginning at the bottom there, question 52. What comfort... Is it to you that Christ shall come again to judge the quick or the living and the dead? Answer, that in all my sorrows and persecutions, with uplifted head, I look for the very same person who before offered himself for my sake to the tribunal of God, and has removed all curse from me to come as judge from heaven, who shall cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but shall translate me with all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joys and glory. With the Lord's help, let's consider this very precious doctrine, and also with the help of our Heidelberg Catechism under the theme Christ's return as judge. Christ's return as judge. And we'll see this in uh, three thoughts. First, the believer's expectation. Second, the believer's longing. And third, the believer's patience. So, Christ's return as judge. The response of expectation, longing, and patience. Well, as we would consider how our catechism draws out the biblical truth of Christ's return as judge, you notice that it is immediately forcing a very practical use of this doctrine. It would be um, impossible to miss from the kind of language that it uses. That in all my sorrows and persecutions, with uplifted head, I look, and so on. Where we would look up, that denotes something that there is, you're expecting something. You are looking for something that could arise just around the corner. And immediately we see how very different the believer is from the unbeliever. An unbeliever, of course, does not care at all about the second coming of the Lord Jesus as judge. It doesn't fill their thoughts. It, it doesn't inform their life at all. And I think 
We can also recognize that even as believers, this kind of response of really expecting Christ to return, really seeing that as something that is on our horizon that must be reckoned with, that can sometimes be lacking in us. So it's important that we see that when it's well, the faith that dwells in our hearts towards the Lord Jesus thinks much upon this. But what if there was someone here today who doubted this reality of Christ returning as judge? Maybe you wouldn't even have the courage to say it out loud, but you'd, you'd have to say that this, this seems like it's very hard to believe. We, we look around at the change in the seasons, at the different rhythms and patterns of life, and it seems as though everything is going to continue on as it has for ages past. So as it has been, so shall it ever be. That is how we may be tempted to live. But the reality is that there's many proofs that ought to persuade each one of us that this is a very certain reality which we must expect. And you might, uh, the first proof that I think we all uh, can recognize immediately is that the character of God really would be enough to to prove this reality, it it seems. Last fall, when we were working through this series, uh, we especially touched on some of those wonderful truths about the character of God, about his holiness and of his righteousness. And we spoke about other things as well, about his, his power, about how he providentially controls everything that happens in this world. He is a king who is upon his throne and he governs everything that takes place here below. But immediately when you reflect upon that, here is a righteous God, a holy God, an all-powerful God, and you look around at the, at the world and it, and it doesn't seem to match up seems like a great many people live lives that are openly defiant of God. And they do not receive a just sentence and punishment in this life. Indeed, we, we can look at cases in maybe our own life or uh, what we even see in the news. There are, are people who have received terrible uh, consequences for defying God. People who blasphemed God and, and died in a, in a terrible, dramatic way. And yet, it's not really the, the norm, is it? You can think of politicians even in, in our own land, how, how it is that so often they are promoting the worst, most evil forms of defiance against God's law, promoting idolatry, the worship of other gods promoting sexual immorality, promoting the murder of unborn children. It's a land that is filled with guilt, and yet many of these politicians, they receive the acclaim and the praise of our nation, and it may seem as though they will, they will die with, with great reputations. People will maybe build statues of them or commemorate them in different ways. And when we would recognize that God is just, 
and that God is all-powerful, we must see that that cannot be the end of the matter. There must needs be a time in which the judge of all the earth will do right. It just follows from his character. But if that were not enough, surely the testimony of our own consciences would also reveal this reality. You can think of, for example, what Paul writes about the Gentiles, the people who do not have the laws and commandments of God. They don't have the word of God. And yet, notice what he says about these people without so much revelation of God's character. He says in Romans chapter 2, verse 15, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts, the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. And if you read that chapter, you'd see it's all in the context of the reality of God judging all men and women by the standard of his law. These two things go together. Why is it that even perhaps when you were an unbeliever, when you knew that you had done something terrible, you had turned a, um, a commandment of God on its, on its head and, and lived in defiance of him, or perhaps you'd been cruel and abusive to someone, or perhaps you'd betrayed someone's trust, even if no one other soul in the whole world knew, you felt that inside, an inner awareness that you were condemned, you had not done right. Every nation has this. Every people group on the world, they have a conscience. And why would God have placed that conscience in your heart, in my heart, that inner policeman that is pointing to this and that violation of God's holy commandments were there not coming a day of judgment when the judge of all the earth will cause us to answer for what we've said and thought and done. But if this was not sufficient, and it is sufficient to condemn anyone who would deny the reality of the, uh, of the coming judgment, the testimony of Scripture is so, so full of examples. You could look at the Old Testament where in the very last book of that book of Ecclesiastes, written by King Solomon, there are those words in Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 14, God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be bad. Nothing exempted. Everything, no matter whether it's secret from others, God knows, and it will be revealed on that day. And he will administer justice according to what was done. Seems like even the very first prophet that we know of in Scripture, the, the prophet named Enoch, Enoch, he, he also spoke of this, as we see in, in the book of Jude, in verse 14. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. So those are the, uh, the saints of God, the angels, his great heavenly host. 
to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, deeds which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And if the first prophet in in the whole history of the world spoke of this reality of the day of judgment, certainly the greatest of all prophets, the Lord Jesus himself, he had ample testimonies of this reality. He spoke in Matthew 12, verses 36 to 37, But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of of judgment for by thy words thou shalt be justified and by thy words shalt thou shalt be condemned and that's a striking thing we might think that perhaps we could speak about uh, someone in a particular way because they won't hear and and other people uh, won't hear about it but there is one who hears everything god hears all And so it will all come out. Matthew 16, verse 27, the Lord Jesus says, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. And here is especially what comes out in crystal clarity throughout the New Testament revelation through Jesus Christ, that it is God who has committed all judgment to his own beloved Son. It is the Son of God enfleshed in humanity, the God-man. He is the one who will carry out this solemn divine verdict. As God who is the, equal to the Father in all things, this, this divine Son. He has all power to know every case that comes before him, every detail of evidence. And he has power to execute both reward and punishment. And as true man, he will visibly display God's judgment when he returns visibly, physically, literally as he descended up into heaven so shall he come down the son of man shall return as judge and this really becomes central to the whole apostolic message when i think of the one of the best examples of this if you ever uh, want to read a really fascinating passage of scripture you go there to acts chapter 17 Acts 17, there you have this brilliant servant of the Lord, the Apostle Paul, a man who had been studied in all the the traditions of the Jews, in all the deep theology of the Old Testament, in all the philosophy of his own day. He had been saved powerfully by the Lord Jesus. He was now his messenger. and He was standing before all of these great pagan philosophers, Stoics and Epicureans, and all the great philosophers of that day. They brought him before him at there on Mars Hill, and he had an opportunity to witness. You read of his account. He speaks of God, the, the unknown God to these pagans, who nevertheless created all men by 
uh, his power and has governed all of history. And then he comes to that great climax, the central place of the gospel message in that testimony was in Acts 17, verse 31. Paul says, He that is God hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. Now here you have a testimony that Paul says ought to bring assurance unto all men, ought to persuade all men. Would there really be anyone here who would doubt the word of the living God, this God who cannot lie that there is coming upon us a day of judgment? Well, let the resurrection of Jesus Christ be a further testimony unto you where this one has passed through the judgment of God. This one has perfectly upheld the commandments of his God, living righteously before both God and man, and even all the way to his death on Calvary's tree. God had one word to say about his son, this is my beloved servant in whom I am well pleased. And the testimony and the verdict of that, it was evident when he rose from the dead on the third day. That was the seal, the certain sign that this was the man of God's choosing and appointment, the God-man, the Messiah, the Christ, who would judge all. And where, congregation, this has been so plainly revealed to us, ought it not to fill us with expectation. Look back at at James chapter 5. He says there uh, in verse uh, 8, Be also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draws nigh. It's coming so close, so near. And James, of course, could write that in his own day. The the many thousands of years from the creation of the world. And it had come to this, the very last age, the age in which Christ had come and the fullness of all the promises of God were fulfilled in him. And so that now the very next item on the agenda, the most important thing to happen next is the return of Jesus Christ. Shall we who live even closer to that day, shall we have less expectation than in James's original audience? Ought we not to take these testimonies, to lay it up among our own thought life and say, is this the case for me? Is my head uplifted? Am I looking to those skies to that day when Christ will return with his legions of angels to judge the living and the dead. Well, congregation, there we've seen the expectation of the believer. But likewise, I think you can see from our catechism that there is also a great longing that coincides with this. In all my sorrows and persecutions, with uplifted head, I look for the very same person 
There's really a longing there, isn't there? A longing that this should come about. And here is really where uh, the true testimony of the gospel's work in us must be borne out and it must be so clear if we are going to experience the comfort from this doctrine. When we receive this truth, is it just the case that it fills us with anxiety and dread? Or is it the case that there is a longing, a real desire that Christ would come? Come, Lord Jesus. Oh, of course, there's many parts of the scripture that, that vindicate this uh, this way the catechism is written that denotes a longing for Christ's return. You look, for example, at Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, where it says, For our conversation or our life is in heaven. From whence or from where also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The life of the Christian is a looking for him, of expecting him, of wanting him to come. And you have... Uh, Likewise, the, the words of Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The appearing of Christ, the coming of Christ, it is something that in the heart of the believer is longed for. We want this to come. Yes, we can... Look at all sorts of things in our lives and say, we have this to do yet. We have, have that unfinished business. We have this goal or that objective. But if you dig down deep, believer, do you not feel this? That where Christ would come, if he would come today, then that is well with you. And not only well, but it fills your heart with a burning desire that it should happen, it must happen. Oh, that he would come and return to us. So why is that? Why is there this longing? Well, ironically, or, or perhaps counterintuitively, when you look at um, Lord's Day 19, it seems that the first thing that characterizes this longing attitude of the Christian, it's about the condemnation that will occur. Let's look at, carefully at this answer. That in all my sorrows and persecutions with uplifted head, I look for the very same person who before offered himself for my sake to the tribunal of God and was removed, has removed all curse from me, to come as judge from heaven who shall cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation. We understand that. That is the role of a judge. Where someone has done wrong, where they have committed a terrible and a heinous crime, if they've, they've murdered someone or they've assaulted someone, they've stolen from someone, the role of a judge is what? To administer justice and that is what we see in so many testimonies from the word of God that there is justice coming it says in Matthew 13 
verses 41 to 42. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be a wailing and gnashing of teeth. Likewise, in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, Verse 7, the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now here we do say that there is a sense in which this gives no, um, no longing whatsoever, is it? Isn't that right? We know that even God himself says he does not delight in the death of the wicked. And so much more we. When, we. when we have tasted of the good things of God and we have come to see that there is salvation in Christ, then this... This sort of thing, it, it impresses upon us with such a drawing back. Even if we would escape this judgment, how is it that we could take delight in it and longing for it to come? And yet, notice how the Catechism says this is against God's enemies. Against enemies of God. The God who is perfect in his beauty, in his goodness, in his greatness. Who is our very purpose for existing. Yes, there is a sense in which where justice is done, where God is glorified in the display of his wrath against the ungodly. And this is something that we long for in order that God would be magnified against those who do turn their backs against him and walk in their own way. Congregation, life is not about us and about our own comfort and our own pleasure and our own preferences. It is about God. Everything exists for him. He can do as he pleases with his own creation and where his creation rebels against them willfully blaspheming the Lord of heaven, that is a just and a good thing. It's also the case that there's something here that is especially a word as it concerns our enemies. Notice how it's put there. Um, He shall cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation. It's a constant thing theme that you see in some of these passages that I've read. You look at the context and the reality of coming judgment is is often coming to a church that is under the weight of persecution. Sometimes if we've not experienced that personally, persecution, we can come to see these are uh, things that ought to bring no comfort whatsoever. But if you would live in a land where the government is opposing the preaching of the gospel, where they would take away your children for opposing the ideology of the state, where they would force us and our families to 
engage in immoral practices and blasphemous ideologies where it seems as though the the so-called God of this world, the devil, has sway over the nations and his servants would stamp out the kingdom of Christ from this planet. Then a word about this Christ who comes in judgment upon the enemies of the church, it becomes a welcome thing. But of course, immediately we take that and we must examine ourselves, congregation. Christ has said plainly in these respects, you are either with me or you are against me. Are we those who are living for the Lord? That chapter which we read in James chapter 5 doesn't doesn't begin with a word to people outside of the church, but to people within the church. It's setting forth sins that are very respectable and common, about the hoarding of wealth, of having a greedy attitude towards money, of, of withholding money from giving for those in need, even withholding money from those who've received just wages. And just let's just read those verses again and just, just listen to these searching things that are said. Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for the miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered and the rust of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. It goes on and on in these things. And it's just the folly of it, congregation. To be an enemy of God. To have things in our life that we hold back from Him such that we do not surrender to Him as Lord. To say that we will not have Him to rule over us. Then we find that these very condemnations can fall upon us though we may be in the bosom of the visible church. It must be the case, congregation, we are the true friends of Christ and the true friends of the church. But the comfort, congregation, the comfort of knowing that Christ will vindicate his own. It's not only a word of condemnation that is spoken that causes the the believer to long for this, but also for that gracious reward that gracious reward of of which we read here, but shall translate me with his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joys and glory. There you have it. Those who are every bit as guilty, those who are every bit as condemned, God yet chooses some from that mass of humanity in order to be redeemed unto himself. They receive a reward, a reward of being translated or taken up into heavenly glory and blessing. And notice what a prominent theme that is in the scriptures as well. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 16. For the Lord himself 
shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. There you have it, the undivided family of God. All of those separated from this dark fallen world, redeemed by God's grace, they are there united together with the Lord forever, called up together to be embraced in his love. This is also a fruit from that final judgment congregation. Yes, It is the case that there are those who will receive reward on that day. A reward of incomparable delight and joy from the hand of Christ, the judge of the living and the dead. And surely you could see, can't you? You can see that there is something that ought to fill you with hope and joy. But you say, how can I attain to that kind of knowledge? How can I really know that I will be among those who are blessed forever? Well, there you have the clear instruction from our catechism. It all is found in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That in all my sorrows and persecutions, with uplifted head, I look for the very same person who before offered himself for my sake and to the tribunal of God and has removed all curse from me to come as judge from heaven. You see, congregation, this judge who will come to administer the condemnation and blessing towards the human race, he is not a stranger to you. You know him. He has come close to you and he has offered you the full assurance of salvation in himself. He has offered himself before the tribunal of God. He had no imperfection whatsoever. He perfectly kept all the requirements of God's law. And where you are united to him by faith, where you cast your cares upon him and embrace him with that trusting heart, then he has said to you that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing shall happen to you on that day in the way of wrath. Instead, you will be welcomed by him into the blessed state of eternal life. My congregation, it's those who take this comfort from the promise of the gospel that can trace it all back to what Christ has done. Do you really think that however much you may have served the Lord, however much you may have sought to do what is right, in his sight, that you will be able to stand in that judgment if you would be regarded as you are in yourself. Surely not, congregation. Who can stand in that glorious day of the wrath of God when every 
uh, book is opened and every heart and thought is made manifest. When every idle word which we speak is before his throne, the only way, congregation, the only way to be ready for that day and to receive comfort from the knowledge that it is coming is through trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as your own Savior. Embrace him, congregation. Know this joy, know this longing for his return by making your peace with him now. Well, in the last word, congregation, let's briefly consider this third thought, and that is the patience of the believers. The thing I would draw us back to in this uh, catechism answer is how it begins, that in all my sorrows and persecutions. So really comprehend everything that brings sorrow and pain to your life, every physical infirmity, every sickness, every grief, every burden that we carry, every injustice that we suffer, everything that makes this world a veil of tears. It is all something that is comprehended in the believer's expectation and longing for that day. And so that is why James can speak so strongly about patience. The word that he uses there in um, verse 8, be also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draws nigh. Is the idea of, of not being overwhelmed by passion or anger. It's a hard thing, congregation, sometimes to not be overwhelmed by all the evil that we see around us. It can be hard not to despair at the, at the inconsistency and the wrong and even the evil that you see within. It is so possible to fall into hopelessness and despair when we are simply living day to day in all the trials of this life. But if we would establish our hearts, if we strengthen our hearts, then we must allow this glorious doctrine to make us patient, to be those who bear under the burdens of this life, seeing them all in the context of that great day Congregation, when you feel as though you cannot take another step, lift up your head. Lift up your head and look, for your salvation draws nigh. Apply the promises of Christ's return unto your own soul. Know that in that day he will welcome you and speak those words of supreme consolation. Well done my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord, prepared for you before the foundation of the world. See that everything in your life is no accident. Everything is leading up to that day. It is all going to be made right then. Then we will see what God was up to. Then we will see how every little detail and, and extraneous um, aspect of our lives how it all was filled with meaning and purpose the world is not left to chance it is not left to the devil it is all in the hands of a wise and a good creator and of a just judge 
congregation when you have this in your heart. When you exercise this patience towards that great day and all these virtues that you see in this chapter of living for the Lord, of living a life of prayer and of love and of devotion, of sacrifice. These things no longer become burdens. Rather, they are simply our joyful service of thanksgiving for what Christ has done for us and shall yet do. Congregation, this is where true hope is to be found. Establish your hearts here. Place every one of your loads upon this Christ who is the returning judge. And in that way, you will find your supreme comfort, we pray.